If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be picking up around verse 32. If you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the racks right there around you. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, we've got some free ones in the back, back on that communion table. And make sure you grab one, take one with you on your way out. We uh, definitely want you to have God's Word in your hand. Best thing you can own. All the verses will be up on the screen as well. What we've been discovering through the book of Acts is that our God is really, really good at taking down barriers. We, we are uh, a species of people who have a tendency to draw barrier lines in our life. We, we put up these little safety tapes about how far we go and how far we won't go. And it's very easy for us to do that based on our experience. You know, you have certain limitations in your life. I've gone this far, but I've never gone there. I don't want to step out there. That's too dangerous. And we discover that God in the book of Acts is taking down these little boundary lines that the church in Jerusalem had created for itself. Literally, God pushing them out of their comfort zone, asking, who do you trust? Are you willing to trust me? Are you going to lean into your own ability? We saw last week that Paul, like many of us, had to learn the hard way that God does what He needs to do to reach into the lives of people in order to help them understand who Jesus is. God is always reaching those who seem unreachable. That's the conclusion we landed on last week, that there is no one beyond God's reach. God is always pushing, always trying to use His church to push into areas where people haven't previously gone before. I want you to see a little bit of a translation or a transformation in Paul's life by showing you a passage on the screen. It comes from 1 Corinthians. Now think about what you learned about Saul last week, the Christian killer, if you were here. Persecuting Christians, we compared him, compared him to someone like a member of ISIS last week, just hunting Christians down to destroy them. And then this transformation took place to the degree that you see something like what you're about to see in 1 Corinthians. And I want you to notice how many times he uses this phrase, that I might win. Watch this, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul's utterly transformed. His boundary line used to be Judaism. That was his safety net. He believed that he could reach God by doing enough good things through the law. Jesus met him and said, Paul, what are you up to? What are you trying to do? God took down the barrier tape to push him. We see him five times in one paragraph say, I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to win those who don't know Jesus yet. I'm going to go to whatever length I have to do. I'll become all things to all men in order to help people understand who Jesus is. He's utterly transformed and he became so bold, he became downright irritating. People in Damascus wanted to kill him because they couldn't stand what he was saying about Jesus. He leaves Damascus and goes to Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem want to kill him because they can't stand what he's saying about Jesus. So very intelligently, the disciples put him on a boat and they sent him back to Tarsus. And we ended last week by seeing that 
Paul went into this area in Tarsus, his hometown, became a student, intense student of the Word for 10 years, where he really sharpened his skills, and we'll leave him there for now, because the next three chapters are about Peter. There's this transition that takes place. So we won't come back to Paul until Acts chapter 13, because the scene intensely finds one central figure now. Uh, We've seen in the last few weeks God taking down these boundary lines, pushing the church out into Samaria. What was Samaria church? It was the place where Jews wouldn't go. It was a place where half Gentiles, half Jews lived, half breeds, who seemed unreachable to the Jews. And we find the church being pushed into Samaria. Well, no more does Samaria come to Christ. And then we see God moving towards Africa. And Philip is used to speak to a leader of the court. And then when Africa is exposed to the gospel of Jesus, then we find God going after the Christ killer, Paul. We saw him coming to Jesus last week. He's the guy hunting down. Now he's hunted himself. Well, today what we're going to see is God pushing on those boundary lines again because he's going to begin pushing on Peter. There is something that Peter learned from Jesus, a characteristic trait that's going to come screaming off the pages this morning. No matter how big or how important Peter became, he learned from Jesus he needed to have personal ministry, personal one-on-one contact with people. Jesus, no matter how many crowds crammed around him, he always had time for individuals. So we understand God expects us as Jesus people to pour into the lives of other people. Now, Peter has known what it is to teach to thousands. Remember Pentecost? Thousands of people. The church exploded, 20,000 people. Then he goes to Samaria. The church explodes again. We find him speaking to the Supreme Court twice. So he knows what it is to speak to a prestigious audience. He knows what it is to speak to a really large audience. But we're about to see another side of Peter's work where he's going to work with individuals. Let's go to verse 32 in Acts chapter 9. It says this, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions... He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. So right away you discover in verse 32, Peter's traveling. Now in the first century, traveling was not as easy as it is today. No highways, first of all. And you certainly didn't have cars. So you're either on foot, or if you happen to be wealthy enough, you have a horse or a chariot. Well, Peter's not wealthy, so he's on foot. But there's no hotels there's no drive through restaurants. So traveling is not easy like it is today. Traveling is hard work. And when you get to a town, you've got to find somebody who's willing to put you up because there's no hotels, and you've got to find somebody who's willing to feed you because there's no drive throughs So he's got a, a hard thing going on here. But what we discover is Peter, even in spite of how hard it is, he's out among the people. He's moving around. It makes it a whole lot easier for God to use you when you're out there, when you're available. My experience, I've been in active ministry, um, occupational we'll call it, occupational ministry since I was in my early 20s. My experience is this, those people who are actively involved are usually the ones whom God gives the greatest opportunity to, to be used. Think of it this way, you've probably heard this phrase before, if you want something done, give it to someone who's really busy. Some of you are probably victims of that, right? You're really, really busy all the time and people keep piling more on because you're busy. Well, that translates over into kingdom work. God always seems to give his greatest opportunities to his busiest people. Well, that's what Peter is. 
Now, we find him, according to verse 32, in Lydda. Uh, I'll give you a map in just a few minutes to help you understand the setting. But Lydda is in the Mediterranean coastal area, not all the way to the seashore, but close. We'll get there in a minute when we go to Joppa. But Lydda is this town that's very near it. It's part of what's known as the fertile coastal plain area of the Sharon. Sharon is this farming area. It's an agricultural area, and it's large. It extends from southern Israel all the way north up to Mount Carmel. Now, apparently, Philip has already been to Lydda because there's believers there. And we learned in Acts chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit snatched Philip away, he deposited him in Azotus. And in Azotus, he began preaching. Well, people came to Christ. And so we see Peter stopping to visit the saints who live in Lydda, probably as a result of what Philip has done. You and I know this morning very, very little about Ananias. We just see his name mentioned here. All Dr. Luke tells us is he's been bedridden, absolutely helpless. For eight years, he's paralyzed, meaning he has no prospect that anything's going to change. All he knows is laying there day in and day out. So it's first century. There's no wheelchairs, right? There's no hospital beds. If you're going to go someplace, it's because someone is carrying you, either on a pallet or on a mat. Some way somebody is transporting you. So in his situation, he has to come to the conclusion, it's never going to change. My situation is like this. I may as well get used to it. But we've been learning no one's beyond the reach of God, right, church? No one's beyond the reach of God. So the message of Acts is this. If you haven't picked up on it in the last couple months, Jesus is alive. Therefore, everything changes because Jesus is alive. Let's move forward. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. All and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So immediately he's up. He's upright and walking. It's the evidence that the paralysis is healed. He's got this ability to rise. Literally a walking miracle. The message of Acts, church. Jesus is alive. And so things change. You and I live in a world of fatalism. It is so much easier to find a pessimist than it is an optimist. You can say amen to that one if you want, because it's true. I mean, when you find an optimist, you want to hang out with that person, right? Because there's so much pessimism. There's so many individuals that have arrived at the conclusion, well, this is just the way it is, and it's never going to change, so I may as well get used to it. That's Aeneas. He's a paralyzed man laying in bed, first century. There's no way to help him. Jesus invades his life. Even though he's arrived at the conclusion, it's never going to change. See, that is not the message of the Bible. I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Let's, let's move forward. Now, besides the obvious impact of the miracle in Aeneas' life, it's really significant to us this morning how it's used. Just seeing him convinces people they got to turn to Jesus and they've got to trust Jesus. Now, for Peter's part, because he's personally available, because he's out there, because he's made himself available and he's involved, God has given him an open door for ministry. Now, verse 35 is something you're going to want to remember as we move through the text this morning. Verse 35 says, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. 
So Peter's availability in Lydda is leading to more kingdom opportunity that he doesn't even know about yet. Because he's made himself available, God's got some things cooking in the background. Peter's not aware of them, but he's going to become aware of them. So his availability is leading to God's ability to be put on display. Peter's available. God says, I'm able, so I'm going to put myself on display through you. I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Am I available? Am I available for God to work through me? Do I intentionally respond to opportunities that God puts in my path? Even when it interrupts your day, goes against your plans, the things that you have on your agenda. Am I available? Do I intentionally respond to opportunities God puts in my path? Even when, and I'm going to say especially when in parentheses, especially in the times of trauma. Because our God really shines during times of trauma, doesn't he? He says, in my strength, you will find power when you are in your weakness. Literally in the Bible, it says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God shines during times of trauma. So we lean into him to allow him to put himself on display. So we have to ask ourselves, do I intentionally respond to these opportunities that God puts in my path? Just because we live in a fallen world, things happen and we have to be used to intervene. Now let's come back to verse 35 because it says, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and so they turned to the Lord. See, verse 35 should be shocking to us this morning. This is not just one town with a bunch of people in it. It's the plain of Sharon, a massive area where everyone who hears and sees God's power on display, they all believe. Now, let me have this map go up on the screen so you can understand this. When he says Lida and Sharon, you need to understand the population base. First of all, to my right and your right as you're looking at the screen, Jerusalem, you see on the far right side, Joppa's at the top. We'll move there in just a minute in the story. Lida is in the center. Azotus is where Philip started teaching we saw a couple weeks ago. Everything north, including that region, is the plain of Sharon. All those little towns and villages. And Luke uses this, all of Lida and Sharon, the plain of Sharon, saw him and they turned to the Lord. It's got to be shocking. Not just in the town, but this entire region, because Peter was available because he crossed through those boundary lines. See, what you don't know perhaps about Lida, it was that it was an intensely populated Gentile area. Jews don't go where Gentiles are at, right? Jews don't go where Samaritans are at. Well, God's already broken down that boundary. Now he's moving into this Gentile region. God's beginning to push the boundaries. Now, while Peter's at Lida, tragedy strikes in Joppa. It's only 10 miles apart. It's not that far away. And they hear that Peter is available. Let's, let's move forward into verse 36. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. See, I'm not the only one that uses Greek language, right? Dr. Luke's doing it for you too, all right? So he says her name in Greek is Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she constantly did. So you got a female disciple who's professing Jesus, She's very active, apparently, in her church community, intensely loved. You see her two names that are mentioned here, 
Tabitha, which is her Hebrew or what you would say her Aramaic name, and then Dorcas, her Greek name. Uh, They both mean the same thing. Both Dorcas and Tabitha mean gazelle. Uh, When I think of gazelle, I think of a beautiful animal. It's very sleek, very, very quick. Now, according to verse 39, if you allow your eyes to drift down there, we'll get to it in just a minute, but it, it tells us that she made clothing. She's a seamstress. She builds into the lives of people because of the skills that God has given her. She sounds like a genuinely cheery person to be around because she's a gift giver. Have you ever met a grumpy gift giver? I haven't. All the gift givers I meet, people that have just this generosity in their nature, are generally cheery people to be around. They're kind of people you want to hang out with. Well, that seems to be the case in her situation. No wonder she's got people going to bat for her. She's a modern day, if you will, New Testament times example of an Old Testament person found in Proverbs 31. A Proverbs 31 woman, if you've never read it before, Proverbs 31 is this description of, of the ideal woman, okay? So Proverbs 31 has got all these characteristics of this ideal woman. Let me show you an example of it. Proverbs 31:20. she extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. See, Tabitha is a New Testament example of the Old Testament Proverbs 31 woman. And according to verse 39, all of her energies are dedicated and poured into these people who are destitute. Move forward with me into verse 37. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body and they laid it in an an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. Now hear this. No previous apostle to this point has raised anyone from the dead. They've been involved in healings. Jesus has raised people from the dead, but no apostle has. So this church is sending for Peter, and it's evidence that they've got faith, not in Peter, but faith in the resurrected Jesus. While Jesus was on earth, he raised people. He healed people. Well, these people believe that Jesus is alive, and He changes things. Just because He's not on earth, He's in heaven. He stands at the right hand of God. He's not constrained by anything, so they literally believe that Jesus can do things because He's alive. So Jesus is alive. He changes things. You getting tired of hearing it yet? I'm going to keep coming at you with it because I want you to really get this down. So in verse 38, we find them imploring Peter. Don't delay. You've got to come to us. Now, no doubt, because they're only 10 miles apart, they've heard of the healing in Lydda. And they certainly understand. We can act on this, so they send these two men. Now, notice, Peter goes. He's available, church. I told you to keep your finger on verse 35 because we're going to come back to it. 35 said, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. So that means despite the awesome response, despite the fact that Peter's got another megachurch on his hands. He's been in Jerusalem, the church exploded, God pushed him out. He's been in Samaria, the church exploded, God pushed him out. Now he's in the plain of Sharon, and the church is exploding, and God calls him to an individual again. So despite the awesome response of people confessing Jesus, Peter's not so self-absorbed with the crowd that he won't help. So he's got this three-hour foot journey now. 
He can walk 10, 10 miles in three hours. He, he's going to make this walk. What's he thinking? He, he's knowing that no one has raised the dead, so he's got to be thinking, what can I do? She's dead. What, what do they want from me? I'd be also thinking, how is God going to intervene here? What does he want to do? So Luke doesn't tell us what they expected. What's really clear to us is that Peter's available. So verse 37 kind of gives us a hint of what they expected. It says they washed her body and they laid it in an upper room. So instead of burying her immediately, as is the custom in the Middle East, they take her upstairs. Now it's very customary in the Middle East to wash the body, strip it of the clothing, wash the body completely, and then anoint it with spices and then wrap it in white linen and bury it the same day. They didn't do that. Tabitha's body is washed, but it's not anointed. So these people got something else in mind. Something else is cooking in their thinking. They have confidence that God's going to intervene. Why? Because Jesus is alive and he changes things. Let's move forward. Now Peter's about to get this up-close personal view of how much this woman is loved and what a loss her death is for the church. So when he arrives, they begin telling him all about her. Verse 39, so Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So you have a group of widows who are mourning deeply. You live in the first century and you're a widow. Your future is not bright. There's no governmental aid system. There's no one to bail you out. If you have no family, you will be destitute the rest of your life. So you've got to lean into your needs network. We've already seen in Acts chapter 6 all the widows that were making up the church because the Hellenistic Jews came and complained to the disciples, say, our widows are being overlooked in the serving of food. Remember that situation going on? You find it again. The widows are making up the church here in this church in Lydda and in Joppa, and they need to be served. Well, apparently Tabitha has felt that she could fill that bill. She's a seamstress. And so we're told that they begin showing to Peter all the clothing, all the things that she made. As a matter of fact, the, the middle verb in the Greek language means they're literally wearing the clothing. She has given them what they need for their daily need. No wonder this is a personal wound to them. This loss of Tabitha is deep. Now, to understand this story a little bit more fully, you have to remember another story in which Jesus healed a little girl. If you go to Mark chapter 5 later today, I really encourage you to read it if you never have. You'll find Jesus dealing with a little girl who's 12 years old. Now here's the background. Jesus is speaking to a really large crowd and the official of a synagogue shows up and says, my daughter is near death, but if you'll come and put your hand on her, I know she'll be completely healed. So Jesus leaves the crowd and he heads off to the synagogue official's house on the way, some people stop him. They say to the synagogue official, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. Jesus turns to the synagogue official and says, hey, uh, don't pay attention to them. Just believe. So Jesus walks up to the house. The screaming and the mourning is so loud that the authors write it as shouting, wailing that can be heard blocks away. Jesus walks up to the house and says, why are you wailing like this? She's not dead. And they begin laughing at Jesus. 
So he sends them all out of the house because they obviously don't believe, right? So he takes three people into the room with him, Peter, James, and John. And he deals with the situation. He says to the little girl, little girl, arise. Now she was dead, but she's dead no longer because Jesus is there. Now keep that story in mind as you move forward. Verse 40, part A says this, but Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. So Peter sends them out of the room. He arrives, there's a dead body there. He sends everybody out because he's seen his master do this before. I think also because he wants a quiet place to pray. But also another reason, because he's not putting on a display of himself. This is not to draw attention to Peter. But he's seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter, the synagogue official who had the little 12-year-old girl. He's seen Jesus do that. So he kneels down and he prays. So he's all alone in the room. It's just him and God. Now, Peter, up to this point, has been personally involved in healings. We've seen it. We've seen it throughout the weeks in which we've studied the book of Acts. But understand this. He presumes nothing about the will of God. He knows the source of the power, but he's not presuming upon God. So here's here's why I understand he's praying. The same reason that you pray. Because prayer in your life is an admission that you can't fix the situation. I can't fix this. It's beyond me. I'm not capable of fixing this, so I'm putting it in your hands. That's what Peter's doing. It's an admission, and it's a very humbling admission. That's why he's on his knees. That's why we pray on our knees at times, because it's a very humbling submission to God. You can fix this. I can't. You can do this. You can do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that I ask or imagine. Have you heard that verse before? If you haven't, let me remind you of it. Look, look with me on the screen. It comes from Ephesians. God, you, you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty fantastic things. God says, I can blow away past that boundary. I can go beyond anything you can even imagine, exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. Well, Peter understands that. Jesus is alive. So things change as a result of that. Part B of verse 40, Peter, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I want you to hear this. Luke is very careful to include a detail that can easily slip past you. And I think it's significant to pull it out. So the detail is in her name. All along, Luke has been using the Greek form of her name, Dorcas. Dorcas made this clothing. She's also named by the, known by the name Dorcas. So for his Greek readers, he wanted them to get it down. This woman who's known by the name of Dorcas. But Peter addresses her by her Aramaic name, Tabitha. Tabitha, arise. Luke is aware of a very familiar story in which Jesus dealt with a little girl who was laying in a room that no one believed would arise, in which Jesus turned to the little girl and said, Talutha kum, which is Aramaic for little girl, rise. Peter turns to this woman and says, Tabitha Kum. What's he doing? He's just chained one consonant. He's walking in the steps of his master. 
He's modeling exactly what he saw Jesus do. Put them out of the room, pray to God for the source of the power, and then speak, believing that because Jesus is alive, everything changes. See, he's walking in the footsteps of his master because he's a disciple. So he goes to the one who is the source of life, the one who has the power over the death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Remember that story when he's talking to Lazarus' sisters? He's putting Peter to the test here. Peter's faith is being put on display. Verse 41 says this, and he gave her his hand. This is Peter again. And raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Can you imagine for those who love her how their elation has to be off the charts? I mean, there's no words for what's going on here. But I'm convinced God has not raised her for their benefit. They're they're being elated, obviously. There's elation going on, but it's not for their benefit alone. Yet they got their seamstress back. They got the person back who meets their needs, and it's absolutely unspeakable. The result is she's upright and mobile. While the healing in itself is absolutely spectacular, it's what God does with it that has my attention this morning. See, Jesus has been put on display. Jesus gets the glory. Look at the kingdom result in verse 42. Verse 42, it became known all over Joppa, And many believed in the Lord. See, God's got a greater purpose for the events going on in your life today than what you can see. Even when you've arrived at the conclusion, this is just the way it is, I might as well accept it. Nothing's going to change. I'm here to tell you today, church, Jesus is alive. Things change because Jesus is alive. You're seeing evidence of it in Scripture. God has a greater purpose for these events. He's using the raising as a spark for salvation. So we get this really cool footnote from Dr. Luke. He includes verse 43 to help us merge together these two thoughts that Peter's available. He's out there among people, and Jesus is alive, so things change. So the footnote comes in verse 43 because this is a transition to another story. Remember when the Bible is written, there's no chapters, there's no verses, it's just one continuous flow by these authors. Well, verse 43 is this flow linking chapter 9 with chapter 10. There's a story change that you'll get next week, but it ends this way, verse 43, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So Peter's hanging out for how long, we don't know specifically. If you're a student of the Bible, you're familiar with the town of Joppa because that's where Jonah came from. Jonah and the whale. Yeah, that Jonah. The Jonah who was in Joppa when God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and reach out to the Gentiles. And Jonah said, yeah, I got a better idea. I'm going to go to Italy and eat some pizza. So he jumps on a boat and heads across the Mediterranean because he doesn't want to go to where the Gentiles are. You know that story, so we're not going to get into that right now. We'll we'll come back to that a little bit next week. So Peter's in that same Joppa. It's inhabited by Gentiles. There's Jews there. There's Christians there. And there's Simon the Tanner. Now that he's at the seashore on the Mediterranean Sea is really significant because they need the coastal breezes to blow away the incredible stink from the Tanner's house. I grew up in Whitehall, Michigan, just north of Muskegon. I I lived there until I was 18 years of age. 
And in Whitehall, until 1975 or so, there was a tannery. And every day it reminded us that it was there. The smell was off the charts. Now, to make matters worse, Hooker Chemical and Dow Chemical and the tannery all located themselves on White Lake. It's a wonder I don't glow in the evenings. It's it just incredible what they did to that lake. It's, it's been restored and it's beautiful today. But I'm here to tell you, the smell is like nothing else on earth when a tannery opens up the vents and allows the smell of those rotting hides of flesh to be transformed through chemical transmission. Well, he's on the seashore. Simon the tanner is on the seashore. He's dealing with dead animal skins. And you know how Jews feel about dead bodies? Well, that means Simon the tanner can't go to the synagogue because if you're a tanner in the first century, you are shunned not only by the community at large because you stink, but also because you deal with dead bodies. So this guy can't even go to the synagogue to worship God. Where do we find Peter? Staying with Simon the Tanner. Our God specializes in taking down barriers. He's always pushing the boundaries. Peter, who is a good Jew who knows the rules of Judaism from Jerusalem, God has already pushed him into Samaria. Then the gospel went to Africa. Then it went to Saul the Christian killer. And now God's got Peter spending the night at Simon's house. And he's going to be associated with this guy. For how long, we don't know. There is no one beyond the reach of God, church. Even when we think so, when we draw those boundary lines. How is that possible, Mark? Because Jesus is alive and everything changes as a result of it. Jesus is alive. He changes everything. How cool is that? Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us remember that. Father, I pray for this body of believers and for those who might be here just trying to understand this, that you would remind us of this evidential truth. Jesus, our risen King, stands at your right hand. He is alive and he is coming again. We serve a risen King. So that means, Father, we walk in victory. And I'm just proclaiming that truth before you for the benefit of this church. Allow us, God, not to forget this, that we walk in the power and the might and the strength of a risen king. Keep us from putting up boundaries. And where we have these artificial boundaries, Father, I just invite you in my own life to take it down. I invite you on behalf of these individuals here today, I'll just pray boldly this way, that you would begin kicking away at those boundary lines. Take us, Father, to regions we can't even begin to imagine because you can do imaginably, <laughs> you can do exceedingly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Thank you, Father, for these truths. Thank you for the worship that took place today and for the celebration of our risen King through communion. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.